What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. spent the last nine chapters looking at the life of Abraham, and it has been now 25 years since God first made the promise to him that he would have a son. That is a long time to wait for anything, definitely a long time to wait for a promise. I was thinking this week, 25 years ago, I was a sophomore in high school, and so much has changed uh, in the last 25 years. Some of you here aren't even 25 years old yet, uh, and so you know, a lot has transpired in Abraham's life as he has waited. We've seen the ups and the downs, the good and the bad, uh, and now we're going to come to really one of the most pivotal points in his life because he's been waiting, he's been waiting, he's been waiting, and now the wait is finally going to come to an end and God is going to fulfill this promise to give he and Sarah a son. And so we're going to start this chapter with the exciting fulfillment of what we've been waiting nine chapters ultimately to see, what Abraham and Sarah have been waiting 25 years to see happen. But after this exciting fulfillment happens, um, there's kind of a, a plot twist here. You think, oh, this is the culmination of everything, and they live happily ever after. Isaac's born, and right after he's born, there's a problem that exists with Ishmael. And so we're going to have to see how Sarah and Abraham choose to deal with this problem. And ultimately, God is going to give Abraham a promise to help him to choose to deal with this problem the way that God would want him to. And then the story is going to shift to Hagar and Ishmael, and we're going to see that uh, God is going to give a promise to them and, and that he's going to be there with them to help them through what they're going to be going through. And then the, sh- the scene is going to shift again to Abraham and Abimelech. If you remember him from last uh, week, that king that Abraham lied to and said, hey, Sarah's my sister, and he took Sarah into his harem and you know basically rebukes Abraham for that. Well, they're going to have another encounter in this chapter as well. And so there's a lot that's going on, a lot of different characters that we see here. But really through all of it, one of the main things that we're going to see is God's promises being fulfilled uh, and how God, how people respond to God's promises as we see uh, different groups kind of encounter that. And so um, we're going to be looking at four main lessons in this chapter uh, as we see different people encounter the promises of God. But let's start here in chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, uh, kind of the culmination of what we've been waiting for in the birth of Isaac. And the Lord visited Sarah as he said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. There are four important phrases, I, I bolded them there in the, uh, the verses, that I wanted to draw your attention to. Notice the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. The Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old t- age at the set time 
of which God had spoken to him. So when you see these four praises, the as he had said, as he had spoken, at the set time, which God had spoken to them, what are these phrases emphasized for? What are they ultimately pointing to? God's faithfulness to do what? Do what he said. Absolutely. He's fulfilling his promise. The first two verses here, I think, reveal three important things that we can trust when it comes to God's promises. The first thing that we can trust concerning God's promise is we can trust the promises of God's word. Notice three times we see this said, God spoken, God had spoken. You know, he, he's speaking, he's saying, hey, I am declaring this is going to happen. And he said this 25 years ago, and he reiterated it uh, several times from that time to now. But what he said, his word, what he said he would do has ultimately come to pass. God fulfilled this promise, not because Abraham was obedient, Because if we looked at Abraham's life, actually it's more of a life of disobedience than obedience. God didn't fulfill this promise because of Abraham's obedience. God fulfilled this promise because he keeps his promises. He keeps what he says he will do. And that's the ultimate reason why he does what he said he will do. You know, one of the reasons I think we sometimes don't trust God's promises is because we don't really believe he will do what he said he will do. God, I know your, your word says that you will provide for me, but I just don't really believe that you will do what you said you will do. I know your word says that you will protect me, or I know your word says that you will forgive me, but I've done this sin so many times. I, I, I just don't believe that you will do what you say you will do. Every time that we deny God's promises to us and we don't believe them, that, that's ultimately what we're saying. God, I don't believe that you will do what you say. And that's a sad commentary on us, because ultimately we're saying, God, you're a liar. God, you're not going to keep your promises. God, you're not going to do that. And we don't ultimately want to say that about God, but yet the way in which we respond to his promises oftentimes do. We don't trust in him. We don't believe him because we think, you know what, God, I don't really think in my life at least, maybe in Abraham's or David's or, or Paul's life you might do it, but not in my life. I don't think you will fulfill that promise in me. And we need to realize God is always faithful to do what he says he will do. And because of that, we can trust his promises. We can take them to the bank and say, Lord, if you say it, I know you will do it. The second thing we can trust concerning God's promises is we can trust the promises of God's power. Remember when God told Abraham and Sarah they're going to have a son? Now, they were old, but they weren't too old. But they still thought, oh, I don't know, I don't know you know, if that's going to happen. And then when God starts to reiterate that promise as they get older, they come to the conclusion, God, you're not capable. You don't have the power to accomplish that. You know, it's nice that you said you were going to do that, but you don't have the power to actually do that. I mean, come on, uh, especially Sarah. I'm old. I'm barren. There's no way you have the power to accomplish this. And that drove them to the plan of, you know what? Let's just use Hagar. Because guys, you can't do it. You don't have the power to accomplish it. So why don't we just try to use Hagar to accomplish it instead? But you know what? God did a miracle. Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90 years old. Her womb is dead. And yet the Lord miraculously enables them to have a son. You know, another reason we sometimes don't trust in God's promises is because we don't believe, like Abraham and Sarah did, that God has the power to actually fulfill them. 
Lord, I know you say if I confess my sins, you're faithful and just to forgive them, but I don't know if you actually have the power to forgive that horrible sin that I've done. Lord, I know that you say you are my strong tower, but I don't know if you really have the power to protect me from the attacks of the enemy or to protect me from this situation that I'm facing right now. I know you say you will provide for my needs, but I don't know if you really have the power to provide for this particular need that is so big in my eyes. So often, the reason we deny certain promises of God is because we just don't believe He has the power to fulfill them. And if that's the case, then we just don't know the God that we serve. The God who can create everything out of nothing is all-powerful. There's nothing that He can't do. There's nothing too big for Him. And so if He promises it to us, we shouldn't think, well, you can't do it. Yes, He can. He is the one person who is always capable of keeping His promises. He's the God of miracles. We see that here with the birth of Isaac, and that should bring us comfort. The third thing we can trust concerning God's promises, and this one's probably the hardest one for us, is we can trust the promises of God's timing. Notice verse 2 says, For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. God had a specific time for Isaac to be born. Now, was that time in the time frame that Abraham and Sarah wanted? No. You know, they probably thought, you're 24 years late. You know, we could wait maybe one year for this, but I mean, it's been 25 years, and this was definitely not in the time frame in which they wanted God to move, but yet God always does things in just the perfect time because that's who He is. He's perfect. His timing is perfect. His ways are perfect. God is never late. Now, we might think He is. We might think, what took you so long? Well, no, I showed up right on time. You know, God's never late. He's always just at the right time. Our watches, our phones, our calendars, they don't rule God. God has His own timing, and it's perfect. And we struggle with that because it doesn't fit oftentimes with the time that we want things to be done in. And I bring this up because I think another reason why we don't trust the promises of God is because we get to a place where we say, you know what, I've waited so long that it's never going to happen. Yeah, that was another reason why Hagar was the choice. God, you've waited so long, surely we need to help you out. Surely you're not going to do this. I mean, so much time has transpired. You know, we must need to do something in order to make this happen because if you were going to do it, you would have done it already. And I think we have that mindset sometimes. Lord, if you were going to do this, if you were going to provide this, if you were going to take care of this, you would have already done it. But since you haven't done it, you're never going to do it. And so I don't trust the promise because I don't believe you're going to do it because you're not doing it in my timing instead of realizing, well, actually, God will do it in his timing, which is best, which is perfect. Our problem is we want everything now. We're not very patient and we struggle with that. So when it comes to God's promises, we can trust uh, the promises of God's word, his power, his timing. And I encourage you to apply the promises of God's word to your life. But in saying that, I do want to bring a couple principles to you because I've noticed uh, over the years being a pastor, sometimes people apply promises to their life that weren't intended for them. Uh, and so that, that's a problem. And so I want to give you just three questions that are good to pose as you're seeking to apply promises, you're reading them in Scripture, you want to apply them to your life. Ask these three questions before you do that so that you're applying promises 
properly. The first question you should ask before applying a promise to your life is, is this a promise that God has said is for everyone? A good hint will be if you see words like whosoever, everyone, anyone, you know, those are words that are pretty giveaway, like, yes, this is for all people. An example of this would be Romans chapter 10, verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't say some, most, it says whoever, anybody who calls on God's name, they will be saved. So this is a promise that is universal to anybody who's willing to accept Jesus Christ. God says, I will save that person. So when you see anyone, any, you know, uh, whoever, you see these types of words connected with a promise, those are great ones to underline in your Bible because you can be confident that's for me. I know I can apply that one. I know for sure that that is for me. The second question you should ask before applying a promise to your life is, is the promise personal in nature? Meaning, is it a specific uh, promise given to a specific person at a specific time? Meaning, it's probably not for me. Here's an example. Acts 18, 9 and 10. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. The promise that God gives here to Paul is, hey, you know what? I want you to speak. Don't keep silent. He just got beaten for keeping, uh, for speaking, and so God is trying to encourage him. Hey, I'm going to make it so that no one will attack you or hurt you. Now, this was a specific promise to Paul, and it wasn't a blanket one for the rest of his life. It was actually for this particular time, because later on in Paul's life, he speaks and he's beaten. He speaks and he's in prison. He speaks and this doesn't happen for him. So God was saying, at this moment, in this time, speak, because I promise that I will protect you. I will make it so no one hurts you. Now, if you were to read this and say, oh, this is so wonderful. I am going to apply this to my life. God did this for Paul. He's going to do this for me. So I'm going to speak. And I know that nothing ever is going to happen to me. I'm never going to be hurt. God's not going to let people come against me because he promised it right here in his word. Well, the problem is that promise wasn't for you. That promise was for Paul at that moment. And then you're going to go speak. And then something's going to happen. And maybe you're in prison or maybe you're ridiculed or maybe you're beaten. And you're like, Lord, why didn't you fulfill this promise? What's wrong with you? Why didn't you do this? Well, he didn't fulfill it for you because it never was for you. It wasn't meant for you. And so we need to make sure that we're not applying promises to us that God gave to specific people at specific times that weren't for anybody else. The third question you should ask before applying a promise is, is this promise conditional? There are many promises in the Bible that have a condition attached to them. If you do this, I promise to do that. If you don't do this, I promise to do this. But if you don't fulfill the condition, then the promise is not available to you. For example, James 4.10 says, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. The promise is a great one. I'm going to lift you up. But there is a condition. You have to humble yourself. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Wow, what a great promise. God's going to direct your paths. There's a condition. Trust him with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. You do that, he'll lead you. You don't, he won't. So notice the promise is with the condition. And so if you see a promise that has a condition to it, that's not a bad thing. Just realize I'm not going to receive that promise unless I do what God is telling me to do.
here. And so don't be all upset. Lord, why aren't you directing me? I can't believe it. You promised to direct me. Well, you're not trusting in me. You're not acknowledging me. You're doing it all yourself. So why would I fulfill that promise? You're not fulfilling the condition. Uh, And so as we seek to apply promises to our lives, these are great questions to pose so that we don't get ourselves frustrated and angry at God when we shouldn't be because God will fulfill all the promises that he's given to us. And if they're ones with conditions, he will fulfill it if we do what he asks us to do. So God finally fulfills the promise to Abraham and Sarah. He blesses them with a son. And now we're going to see Abraham's response. He's been waiting 25 years, and his response is great. Notice what he does in verses 3 and 4. And Abraham called the name of his son whom was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. So notice we're told there's two things here that Abraham does. What's the first thing he does when his son's born? He names him what? Isaac. And what's the second thing that he does? He circumcises him. And at the end of verse 2, we're given the reason why Abraham does these two things. Why why does he do them? Ah, because God had commanded him to. If you remember back in chapter 17, God not only tells Abraham, I want you to name this son that I'm going to give you Isaac, which means laughter. But right after that, he establishes this covenant of circumcision. He says, Abraham, you need to go home today. You circumcise yourself. You circumcise every man here. And from now on in the future, when boys are born, when they're eight days old, you circumcise them. That's what I'm commanding you to do. Now Isaac is born. The name that Abraham chooses is Isaac, in obedience to the command. On the eighth day of Isaac's life, he is circumcised in obedience to God's command. And this is wonderful because as Abraham struggled with obedience, yeah, I mean, he's a man that has been more disobedient in many respects than he has been obedient. And and so this is a great thing that we see. God fulfills the promise and Abraham's response is, I'm going to obey. I'm going to call this son the name that you told me to. I'm going to circumcise this boy like you commanded me to. This is a great example for us to apply to our life and the second lesson that I want us to take note of. One of the best ways to respond to God fulfilling a promise in our life is to obey him. And the reason this is one of the best ways to respond is because one of the main things God wants from us is obedience. When God fulfills a promise, there's all sorts of ways in which we like to respond, and many of them are are healthy and good, thanksgiving, worship. But I think one of the ways that God really loves for us to respond, one of the things that he loves the most, because he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. He doesn't say, if you love me, thank me. If you love me, worship me. If you love me, do these things. Now, I'm not saying those are bad things. Those are all great things. But yet he says, the way you want to, the way I receive love best, five love language book. Well, for God, it's the, the other one, obedience. You know, it's not, you know, closeness. It's not that for God, obey me. That's what shows me you love me. And so one of the best ways that we can respond when God fulfills a promise in our life is that we would obey him, that we would Follow what he says. Do his commands. That's what Abraham does, and it's a a great thing in his life because he's really struggled with that. So Abraham responds to God by fulfilling 
this promise to name his son and circumcise his son. And now we're going to see, how does Sarah respond? In many respects, I believe Sarah wanted Isaac more than Abraham did because Abraham had Ishmael. And that was his son. It came from him. You know, there was even the moment where he said, God, just do all this through Ishmael. Sarah didn't, you know, really want that. And Sarah's been barren and Sarah's been desperate for a baby. And so, you know, Abraham kind of has it through Ishmael, but, but Sarah doesn't. It's Hagar's daughter. It's not hers. Uh, and so I think she's even more desperate for this child. And let's see how she responds here now in uh, verses five through seven. Now, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh. And all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. So here the Bible clarifies, Abraham's 100. And what did that make Sarah? 90 years old. And her response to God fulfilling this promise is, God has made me laugh and all who hear me would laugh. I mean, who would say that Sarah would bear Abraham a son at 90. I mean, come on. And I think this is so humorous because she laughed once before, back in chapter 18, when God reminded Abraham she was going to have a son, but her laughter wasn't like, oh, this is so great. It was a laughter of unbelief. It was like, oh, that's never going to happen. There's no way I, at my age, am going to have a child. And God rebukes her. Why did Sarah laugh? And she tries to deny it. And he says, is anything impossible for the Lord? Anything too hard for me? So that laugh was a laughter of unbelief. But this laughter is one of joy. Oh my goodness, I can't believe this actually happened. This is so amazing. People are going to laugh with me. We're just going to get together as I hold my son. And we're going to laugh at the reality that a 90-year-old woman has a baby. And how amazing God is. To fulfill that. And I want you to try to imagine how Sarah must have felt as she's there holding Isaac in her arms, this son of promise, this son that she's waited 25 years for in the sense of when she first heard the promise, but she's been waiting her whole married life for a child. She's 90 now, so she could have been waiting 70 even more years than that. She was desperate to have children. She was barren. This has been one of her heart's desires, and it's finally fulfilled. And I'm sure that she would say, as she's so full of joy, it was worth the wait. Getting this child, as long as that was, and as hard as it was, you know what, now that I have him, it was worth the wait. Have you ever wanted something really bad and had to wait a while for it? Maybe it was a, a Christmas gift as a little kid because like one day seems like a year to you, but you know, maybe you were desperate for that particular gift and you knew your parents were going to get it, but you had to wait till, you know, Christmas day in order to receive it. Or, or maybe as we got older, it's that raise that kind of is aloof and your, your boss keeps saying, Oh, I'm going to give it to you. And then a year goes by and another year goes by. And you're just, you're waiting. You need it. You want it. And then you finally get it. And it's like, Oh, this is so wonderful. But those two things wouldn't compare to this baby that Sarah receives. It was worth the wait. The third lesson I want you to take from Sarah's response is God's promises are worth the wait because when they're fulfilled, they will bring us great joy. I think that's a thing that we struggle with. Like, Lord, is it really worth it? 
Is your promise really worth it? Is what you can do for me really worth it? And we lose sight of how wonderful God's promises are and what He does for us are. And It's worth the wait. And it's worth waiting the right way, which Abraham and Sarah didn't do. They could have been so much more blessed in these 25 years if they waited properly, but yet, you know what? There's so much joy when the promise ultimately is fulfilled. So now Isaac is finally born. And you know, there's something about Isaac's life that's very unique. Uh, it's what the, the Bible refers to him as a type or a picture of Christ. Meaning as you look at Isaac's life and you compare it to Jesus, there are some very significant comparisons. And I'm going to be highlighting those comparisons starting now as we move through Isaac's life. And we see some things that are very, very great pictures of Jesus in the next chapter. But even here in the birth of Isaac, we see some unique things about his birth that most people don't have uh, associated with their birth that are just the same as Jesus' birth as well. And I just want to quickly list for you six ways in which Isaac's birth compares to Jesus' birth. And the list that's up on the screen, you see verses there. You can read them on your own that just shows the comparison uh, from Jesus to uh, Isaac. But first, both were the promised sons. God promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have this son many years before. God also promised in the Old Testament just... His people, I am going to send my son. And even in Isaiah, speaks of the virgin will give birth. And then he specifically promises Mary and Joseph that this is going to happen. Second, both were born after a period of delay. Now, 25 years is a long time when we talked about that. But the delay from when God first spoke about the coming of the Messiah, remember it was Genesis 3.15 when he talked about, hey, Satan's going to bruise your heel, but he's going to crush your head, and I'm going to send him, and it's going to be from the seed of the woman. Uh, so that was the first prophecy speaking of the coming of this. So really thousands of years have transpired from that first time to the actual coming of Jesus Christ. Third, both mothers were assured that God could do the impossible and give them a son. Sarah's thinking, I'm too old and I'm barren. There's no way it can happen. And God says, is anything too hard for me? Mary, how is this possible? I've never known a man. I'm a virgin. How can you do this? And the same thing. He says, with God, nothing is impossible. Fourth, both were given names rich with meaning before they were born. You know, a lot of people don't get their name until after they're born, and they don't get their name specifically from God, but God specifically gave Isaac's name to Abraham and Sarah, it meant laughter, and it had a very specific meaning. He also gave Jesus' name to Joseph and Mary, for he will save his people from their sins. Fifth, both births occurred at an appointed time that was God's appointed time. There was a specific time. It wasn't in the time frame of Abraham and Sarah, but it was in God's that Isaac would be born in the same way. There's a 400-year span of silence after the last book of the Old Testament before the birth of Jesus Christ. They're waiting. And yet, God had a particular time frame in which he was going to send Jesus. And six, and finally, both births were miraculous. Aren't too many miraculous births these days, but God did a miracle in allowing Sarah to be pregnant and an even bigger miracle in allowing Mary, who was a virgin, to also be pregnant and have baby Jesus. So here we see at the start of Isaac's birth, he is a type or a picture of Christ. His birth has a lot of comparisons to the birth of Jesus. And next chapter, we're going to see some even more significant comparisons that we'll look at next week. Isaac's birth also uh, it brought great joy. 
But now it's going to bring some conflict. Uh, and the conflict we're going to see here is going to come from Ishmael, verses 8 and 9. So the children grew, or the child grew, sorry, and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Now, at that time, the typical time that a child was weaned was between two to four. And so we'll kind of just pick the age of three years old. And, you know, it's going to be in that time frame that, you know, Isaac now is done with breastfeeding. And so Abraham's throwing this feast. All right, my, my boy is now weaned and I want to have this big celebration for it. Um, and I think it's important to understand, okay, let's say Isaac's three. Well, how old would Ishmael be? Well, if you remember, Abraham was 86 when Ishmael was born. Abraham's now 100, so Ishmael would have been 14 at the birth of Isaac. If it's three years from then, at the weaning, then Ishmael would have been 17. So he could be 16 to 18, whether Isaac is 2 or 4 or 3. So let's say he's 3, so that makes Ishmael 17 years old. So we have a 17-year-old at this party, and the 3-year-old is being celebrated because he is weaning, and... During this feast for Isaac, Sarah sees Ishmael doing something. What is it that she sees Ishmael doing? Scoffing. Now, the Hebrew word here translated scoffing means to mock, to laugh at, to scorn. Now, we're not told exactly what Ishmael does in order to mock or scorn uh, his baby half-brother, but whatever it is, Sarah sees it. It could have been actions and words or a combination of the two. And she definitely does not like what she sees. And you can understand why. This is my child I've been waiting all my life for. This is a wonderful celebration. And who are you to mock my boy? Now, there probably was a little more issue with Sarah as well, because you remember, this isn't the first time that she's had issue with Hagar. Remember, when Hagar first conceives and has Ishmael, because Sarah came up with that silly plan, but she gets pregnant. And Hagar, what does she do? Does she say, oh, this is so great? Yeah, she despises Sarah. Ha, I can get pregnant from your husband, and you can't. And she despises her, and Sarah does not respond well at all to that. She treats her very harshly, and it causes Hagar to run away. But So Sarah's already dealt with this when, when Ishmael was conceived, and now Ishmael is 17, and it's not Hagar. This time it's Ishmael, and Ishmael is mocking her son. And as you can imagine, you know that motherly instinct kicks in, and she's not re happy. Well, let's see how unhappy she is. Verse 20, uh, uh, Verse 10, sorry. Therefore, she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make you a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. So after Sarah sees Ishmael mocking Isaac, she comes to Abraham and she has a pretty clear, stern response that she wants of Abraham. What does she want Abraham to do? Kick her out. And what does she call her? She doesn't say Hagar. What does she call her? Bondwoman, the slave. Kick the slave and her son, doesn't even call him by name, out of my house. 
And what reason does she give? This slave boy here, Ishmael, he is not going to be heir with my son. They're not going to share your inheritance, Abraham. Get rid of them. Now, the matter, we're told, was very displeasing in the sight of Abraham. And you can understand why. This is my son. You want me to kick my son out of the house? You know, I mean, yeah, he mocked Isaac. You know, teenagers do these things. You, know, you can surely just kind of think all sorts of things might come to mind. Oh, honey, you're just being overprotective. You know, you've always been jealous of Hagar. Hey, Hagar was your idea in the first place. You know, you made your bed. Now you're going to have to sleep in it. I mean, he could have come up with all sorts of reasons why he could have just said, you know what? I'm not listening to you. And I think there was probably possibly he wasn't going to listen because God needs to intervene here for him to do it. So she says, you know what? Cast them out. And I'm thinking, he's probably thinking, last time I listened to you, things didn't go so well, dear. I'm not listening to you now. But yet the Lord now speaks. We're not actually told if Abraham prays, but in the past, when Abraham didn't pray, God didn't speak. So I think it's very possible that Abraham finally wakes up to the reality of when there's a decision like this, it would be wise to come before the Lord. And the Lord now speaks to Abraham and says something very important. He says, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of the bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. So God says, you know what? Don't let this be displeasing. I know you're struggling with this. You actually need to listen to Sarah at this moment. What she's saying is correct because Isaac for in Isaac your seed shall be called. Isaac is the son that God promised, that God provided miraculously. Ishmael is the son that Abraham produced and provided through his flesh. And God does not accept Abraham's son produced by the flesh. God only accepts Abraham's son produced by the promise that God miraculously provided. You know, in Galatians chapter 4, Paul shares how Hagar and Ishmael are a picture and how Sarah and Isaac are another picture and they're opposing pictures of two different things. The people who try to relate to God based on trying to keep the law in their flesh and are slaves still to sin, Paul says they're represented by Hagar the slave and the son of the flesh, Ishmael. But those who try to relate to God by putting their trust in the promised son, Jesus Christ, and put faith in them, they are represented by Sarah and the promised son of Isaac. But in that, he brings up this, um, and she cast out the bondwoman. You know, he re references this back here in Genesis because he's bringing up this reality of, hey, they actually point us to certain things, but God is not going to allow the promised child to be heir with the child of the flesh. They can't co be co-heirs together. And I think another reason that Ishmael needs to go right now is because God does not want Abraham to have a backup son. And if you know what's going to happen in the next chapter, you know what God is going to ask Abraham to do with Isaac. He needs to know if Isaac dies, I can't say, well, at least I got Ishmael. At least I got another son. If this one goes, I got my backup plan. No, there can't be any backup plan. There's only one son of promise. And so God wants Ishmael gone. But God's going to help Abraham with it. He knows, hey, Sarah's ready for them to go. She's got her own reasons for that. I know you're struggling with it, but you know what, Abraham? Here's a promise. 
A promise that I want you to know that's going to help you be able to release your son out of your home. And notice the promise there in verse 13. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. God's basically telling Abraham, you know what, it's okay to let them go. It's okay to release Hagar and Ishmael because I am going to take care of them. I am not only going to take care of them, I'm going to make a great nation out of your son Ishmael. Why? Because he's your son. Because he is your son and it came from your body, I'm going to bless him because of you. And because I promised you that, you can trust me that I'll take care of them and provide for them because he can't be a great nation if I let him die. Uh, And so now we see, all right, what's Abraham going to do? He's had promises from God before. He hasn't responded so well to all of those promises. Now he's given a specific promise about a son that he's very close to. And how is he going to respond to this? Well, let's see verses 10 through 13. Well, actually before that, let's look at the same promise that was given now to Abraham. Remember, was already given to Hagar. Abraham didn't know this promise, but Hagar did. Remember when Hagar ran the first time because, you know, she despised uh, Sarah when she got pregnant and Sarah dealt harshly with her. And so she ran away. She's out in the wilderness. She's met by an angel of the Lord. And the angel tells her something. I'll remind you of what he says back in Genesis chapter 16, verses 10 through 13. It says this. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. Does anyone remember what the name Ishmael means? It means God hears. Behold, you are with child, you shall name, call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. It's connecting that. I've heard you, and I want you to name your child God hears. And he shall be a wild man, and his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees, for she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? So God's already promised, Hey, I'm going to make your son a great nation. She knows this. She's been told this. Now Abraham's been told this as well. And so how is Abraham going to respond to this promise? Verse 14. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it to the boy. He gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now when you first read this, you're thinking, man, Abraham is a jerk. Was Abraham wealthy? Yeah. What does he give her? A bottle of water and a little bread. What could he have given her? I mean, he could have given her servants. He could have had mules, many of them packed full of water and food. You know, I mean, he could have given her a huge amount of things to make sure she and her, his son were taken care of for a long time. He had plenty of resources to do that. So you think, why in the world, if you really love your son and you're so displeased and you're having to send them away, would you send them with a little water and a little bread? And I remember, Well, years ago reading this and kind of concluding, man, I guess he was just upset like Sarah. But ultimately, I think what we see here is Abraham obeying God's promise. 
God says, I'm going to take care of your son. I'm going to protect your son. Now, the thing that Abraham has struggled with when it comes to protection is he tries to do it in his own flesh. Oh, last chapter, we saw it again. Sarah, say you're my sister so that I can protect myself because I don't want anything bad to happen to me. So let's lie. Let me try in my own efforts to take care of these things. He's done that. He's done that. And it's failed. And I think he's finally coming to the place where, yeah, I could make it so that I provide for them. But you know what? What's even better is just to trust the promise of God who says that he will take care of them, that he will make them a great nation. And so I'm just going to give them a little water and a little bread, and I'm going to take a step of faith and trust that God is actually going to do what he promised to do for me. So I don't think this is Abraham being a jerk. I think this is Abraham trying to say, all right, Lord, this is hard for me, but I'm going to put what you said into practice. I'm going to trust that you're going to take care of my son. And so he sends them away and they go into the wilderness of Beersheba. And now we're going to see the scene shift and we're now going to deal with Abraham, or sorry, with Hagar and Ishmael in the wilderness, verse 15. And the water in the skin was used up and she, meaning Hagar, placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot for she said to herself, Let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite of him and lifted her voice and wept. So as they're traveling, they don't have much water. The water runs out. They're in the middle of the desert. It's hot. There's no water around. And she realizes, we're going to die. We don't have water. We're in trouble. And so she puts her son over here, and she goes about a bow's length over here. And why does she do that? Why does she put separation from them? Yeah, she's convinced he's going to die. She doesn't want to watch it. So let's let him die over there. I don't want to see it. And then she goes over here and she just starts weeping. Now, God made her a promise. What was that promise? He would ultimately have to take care of them because he says, I'm going to make Ishmael a great nation. Now, what does Ishmael need in order to be a great nation? Yeah, he needs to live. He needs to get a wife. He needs to have children. There's no nation coming from him. Those things aren't happening yet. He doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have any children. So she can be confident he's going to live because God said he would make him a great nation. So she's now faced with, will I trust the promise of God? Do I believe what he said about my son? And she's at a point where she doesn't believe it. She doesn't think that's going to happen. She thinks that they're just going to die out in the wilderness. But you know what? I love the fact that even when we don't trust the promises of the Lord, he knows where we're at. He meets us where we're at. And notice what God does for Hagar, verses 17 and 18. And God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Who are we told that God heard? Yeah, the voice of the lad. So we have Hagar weeping, and it seems that Ishmael is over here praying, and God hears him. And that's interesting because what is Ishmael's name? God hears. It's a reminder as well. Remember last time I met you in the wilderness, and I said, name your son Ishmael, because I heard you? Well, God hears her again. And the angel is sent to her and says, hey, hey, what ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him 
a great nation. So he says, fear not. Oh, that's easy for you to say. We're about to die here. We don't have any water. And what does the angel do to help her be able to not fear? That's right. Reminds her of the promise. Remember what God told you? Ishmael's going to be a great nation. That can't happen if he's dead. God is going to provide and protect you. You know, it's interesting to me, Hagar is in a miserable place, a place full of fear and weeping, and it's all because she didn't believe in the promise of God. I can understand her being a little worried and wondering, when's God going to come through? When's God going to take care of things? But he promised it. I trust in him. I know something's going to come about now. We ran out of water. God's got to come through now. But she's weeping. She's given up on the promise. She doesn't trust in it. She's full of fear. Which brings us to the fourth lesson I want us to take note of. When we don't trust the promises of God, it often brings us to a place of misery and fear. I don't know if you have seen that in your life. I know I have many times when I don't trust God's promises. It never works out good for me. I never look back and say, you know what? That was really smart. That was really good. I'm going to try that again. That worked out so well, not trusting in the promises, and everything was so nice. No, it's always the opposite. Man, I had so many negative things that came because I wasn't willing to trust the Lord. Despair, you know, depression, fear, you know, whatever it may be. There's these things that come because we won't trust what God says He will do. Well, God's going to do something practical here. He doesn't just say, remember the promise? Yeah, I remember the promise, but still, we're, we're, we need water. Well, God's going to do something practical to show He's a promise keeper. Verse 19. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So now God says, you know, I promised this, but I'm also practical. I'm going to save you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to provide for you. He opens her eyes, and there's a well of water. Now, whether that well has always been there, and because of her weeping and, you know, just, you know, sadness, she never saw it, or whether God just kind of provided it there for them, either way, now she sees it, now she's able to drink, now she and Ishmael are okay, God provides for them, and they dwell in the wilderness, he becomes an archer, and God fulfills that promise for him, and she takes a wife for him from Egypt, which makes sense because she was Egyptian. Uh, so she figures, hey, let's go get a wife like uh, mom, uh, and so God takes care of Ishmael and Hagar as he promised he would. Well, now this chapter kind of takes an interesting twist, and we come back to Abraham, and he has one more encounter. Last chapter, he had an encounter with Abimelech, the king there of the Philistines, and he's going to have another encounter. But the last encounter, Abraham did what? He lied. Didn't go so well. Abimelech didn't like him, because what did God do when he lied? Yeah, he comes to Abimelech in a dream and says, you're a dead man. What? What did I do? Actually, I'm not only going to kill you, I'm going to kill every Philistine unless you give Sarah back. And so there's a little bit of bad blood between these guys. So let's see what happens. Abraham now has a, an opportunity to respond differently than he did last time. Let's see if he learns anything. Verse 22. And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Fiscal, uh, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me with my offspring, or with my posterity. 
For that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me and to the land in which you have dwelt. And Abraham said, I will swear. So King Abimelech, he comes with the commander of his army. He wants to meet with Abraham. And in his encounter with Abraham, they haven't had that much time together, but they've had some time uh, where he's learned a couple things about Abraham. The first thing that he's learned that he says is God is with Abraham in all he does. And that was pretty apparent. Remember? They're there. He probably sees all that he has. That's one area in which he sees God's provision. But yet, he takes Sarah, even though Abraham and Sarah lie. And God protects Sarah. And God comes to him in a dream. And God's going to kill everybody who is a Philistine. And so he sees, yeah, God is definitely with you. But he also notes something else about Abraham that's unfortunate that this was the thing that Abraham displayed. Um, He knows that Abraham's a liar. He knows that Abraham can be deceitful. And that's why he says in verse 23, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me. Well, why would you say that to someone? Well, because you already dealt falsely with me, and I don't want you to deal falsely with me in the future. With my offspring, with my posterity, but that according to the kindness I have done to you in allowing you to live here and giving you all the livestock that he did last chapter, you will do to me and to the land in which you have dwelt. And Abraham responds, I swear, I will not deal falsely with you in the future. Now, there was a problem that Abraham had there in that area. And when he has problems, he oftentimes doesn't respond very well to the problems. He lies and he tries to protect himself. But here we see he just comes straight out with a problem that's there. He said, hey, you know what? We've made this agreement and, and I need to tell you something that there's, there's something going on. And so he actually deals with this in a better way. But verse 25, we're told, Then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor had I heard it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? And he said, you will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand that they may be my witness that I have dug this well. Therefore, he called the place Beersheba because the two of them swore an oath there. Thus, they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Fiscal, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. So Abraham says, hey, I got a problem that you need to be aware of. Some of your guys have seized a well that I had dug. Now, this is a big deal because out in the desert, you need wells because it produces water. And not only for Abraham, but he has lots of people, lots of livestock. So wells were a very significant thing. And they took it from him. And Abimelech saying, hey, this is the first time I'm hearing of this. You never told me. If you would have told me, I would have done something about it. I've never known that my servants did this to you. Uh, And so Abraham, okay, that's fine. So Abraham now does what he should have done last chapter. Remember last chapter when he was in sin, Abimelech gave him a bunch of livestock? Well, now Abraham's the one saying, here, here's a bunch of livestock. I want to make a covenant with you. And then he does something very specific. He gives him seven ewe lambs. And Abimelech's like, well, why are you giving me this? This is to show to everyone, to you, that this is the well that I have dug. This is my well. And so that you guys won't take it in the future. And so they make this 
covenant with one another, and it's something where there's truth, and they do it right, and they do it well, uh, as opposed to last chapter where it's full of lies and problems from Abraham's side. So he's um, doing better now, and his relationship now with Abimelech is good. I'm sure he's wondering, honey, should we stay in Gerar? I mean, we didn't really start this time here very well. Uh, and so, uh, you know, he might have been thinking, maybe we need to move because I'm sure King Abimelech doesn't really like us. But now they've kind of worked some things through here. Uh, and so we see the end of this chapter in verses 33 and 34. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. So there are two things that Abraham does here at the conclusion of this chapter. What's the first thing? Plants a tree. Why do you think he would plant a tree? Memorial? Good. What else? What do you think maybe a practical reason? Shade? What would be good for shade if you're planting it? What does that say? Yeah, you're planning on being there for a while. If you're going to plant something, now these trees actually were made, they grew, they had a lot of foliage, they were, you know, great ones in the desert when it got hot to get under for shade. But, you know, if you're just planting it, you're not going to receive the benefit of it for a few years when it gets big and grows and, you know, you can actually sit under it. So in doing this, he's saying, hey, we're, we're going to kind of lay down some roots here. We're going to stay here. But that's the minor thing. There's a major thing that he does, which we've seen him do several times in his life. What is the other thing he does? He calls on the name of the Lord. This is where we see so much growth in the life of Abraham when he gets to that place where he's like, all right, Lord, I'm actually going to call out to you. I'm going to you know, uh, spend time with you. I'm going to initiate this time with you. And so uh, we've always seen positive benefits when Abraham does that. The next thing that happens, we see growth in his life. And this is a very significant ending because what we're going to see God ask of Abraham in next chapter is what he's most well known for. But his time with the Lord, I think, was very essential to help prepare him for what he's about to be asked to do, which we will look at in detail next week. So in this chapter, we've seen a lot of people, a lot of things, but really we have the kind of theme that goes through it of the promise keeper who is God, and we have four main lessons that hopefully we can take from this. First, we can trust the promises of God's word and God's power and God's timing. Second, one of the best ways to respond to God's promises is through obeying Him. Third, God's promises are worth the wait because they're, uh, when they're fulfilled, they bring us great joy. And fourth, when we don't trust the promises of God, it often brings us to a place of misery and fear like we saw with Abraham or with Hagar. So, hey, God is a promise keeper. Trust His promises and apply the ones that are actually meant for you and use those questions that I pose to make sure that they are uh, but then receive the joy that they bring as God fulfills them in his timing. So any thoughts, questions about this chapter?